Church, would you stand with me as we read God's word? This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. They did not make a mistake. I'm always thankful for scripture readers who take on those names. Good, well done, Kevin. Uh, two quick things before we dive into Acts chapter 6. First, thank you uh, to those of you who have given us a picture of yourself, your friend group, your family, however, whatever it is you want to give a picture of. We do want to do something special with those pictures during Advent. So if you haven't, we request, and it can be your first time here, you can participate. Just a, a picture, uh, a framed picture, no larger than 8 by 10 would be the largest, and we, we would... Um, considered a blessing of the church if you do that. Secondly, um, some of you know I'm, I'm still struggling with the after effects of COVID and specifically fatigue and dizziness and some clarity of thought issues. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and pace myself here physically and mentally. So if I, I don't move around like I used to, that's, that's why. Um, but I do got my chair back there ready to go if, if, uh, if I need it. All right, Acts chapter 6. This is a familiar passage if you've been around the Bible for some time. Uh, It's so familiar that I think it's one of those passages that can kind of lose its punch as it becomes more familiar. Uh, If you may remember, Acts 6 is where where this group of widows felt like they were not being uh, taken care of as well as another group of widows. They were being overlooked in their opinion by the leaders of this fledgling church uh, and the distribution of the food. And, uh, and so they, this is a passage about dealing with that issue. Seven men are appointed to take over this task. And, and many people have historically looked back at this, and the big debate is, are these the first deacons? Is this where the office of deacon developed? Um, and I, I, we're going to talk about this, but I think there's something bigger. When I look at Acts chapter 6, I think there's something more significant, even than whether, significant as it is, whether these are the first official deacons or not. Um, and I think think that this passage is fascinating because we get to look at this passage and we see a growing church and the problems that they experience as because of their growth and the systems required to address gospel needs in their midst. And so really the whole idea of systems, the word we would 
probably here most used in today's cultures, programs, systems and programs. It's kind of a polarizing topic because you have, you have some churches that really lean into systems and programs. They, they are the church if, if you're wanting, say, the best children's ministry, the best community group life, or the best missions programs, or the best equipped to handle the elderly and shut-ins. That those kind of things require programs, and that's certain churches are just really good at it. Other churches have said, we don't want to be that. Uh, we want to be, feel more like a family. We want to be lighter organizationally. Uh, we don't want to be led by the programs. And, and it's gotten so polarizing that you have new words entering into our, our modern parlance like trellising because people just don't want to say programs or systems. So trellising is the, the good and new word to use. And honestly, I'm fine with either spectrum. I, I don't have a real issue with either side. I think there are different churches to do different things. Um, and it's going to make sense that, as we're going to see in this passage, that these systems and programming, trellising, whatever you want to call it, it's, they are usually directly correlated to growth in the church. So we don't, we, nobody, I don't think, I've never been around churches that do systems for system's sake or programs for program's sake. Usually it's a, a direct result of, of size. So a large church is going to have more different kinds of people and things they need to organize, and so they're going to require some systems that a small family-style church just isn't. So it's not necessarily a good or a bad But as we walk through this passage, we really get an inside glimpse at why they needed a new system in this church, one that we would come on eventually to know as deacons, uh, how it is that they were implemented, because it's hugely important to understand what's going on in this this chapter, and then lastly, the result or the fruit of implementing this new system in this young church. So first, the need for the system. Why is it that they needed to have a new system at all? And, it, and we see three things right off the bat in verse one. It comes from growth, grumbling, and the danger of compromising the mission of the church. So that's where I'm going. And most all of that, almost all of that comes from verse one. And we'll start with growth. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you have this church and Luke is making it clear it's not just growing in it's not just growing numerically it's growing in terms of diversity as well. Luke doubles down on this. You have this group of Jewish Hebraic Jews and then you have this group of he calls Hellenistic Jews. Probably an easier term for us is Grecian Jews. So you had these two different groups and the Grecian Jews would have been Jewish people all of these people now believe in Jesus, but they are Jewish by ethnicity and they have, they have left Israel and have joined what we call the diaspora because of various things that have happened in, in Israelite history. Things like the Babylonian or the Persian captivities and for whatever reason, they now live outside of Israel. And because of what Alexander the Great had done in conquering so much territory, if you lived outside of Israel, even though you were under Roman rule, you actually lived in Greek culture. And a lot of people who engage this, they would say the main difference between these two groups of people is, uh, is language and geography. They, they, grew, they speak a different language because they were spread out and they grew up in a, in a different speaking culture. And I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's what you can say is the totality of the differences between the people. Because the Apostle Paul grew up in Tarsus, that's, that's outside of Israel. He speaks Greek fluently, yet Paul does not consider himself a Grecian Jew. What does Paul say to the Corinthian church? 
I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. So there's something else beyond geography and location that made you a Grecian Jew or a Hellenistic Jew. And that thing is that you took on Greek culture. Like culturally, you were not, you were not Israelite. You, culturally, you were Greek. Even though you were a Jew, you looked more Greek. You sounded more Greek. You acted more Greek than your, than your Hebraic Jewish counterparts. So Paul had not adopted the culture the way that these Grecian Jews have. And the point here that Luke, I think, is making is as the church grows numerically, the culture of this church is changing. They're having not only more people, they're having different types of people coming along, and that brings cultural diversity. And I think it it includes things like color, but it's not limited to things like color. I, you know, I think about OGC and even though we're in the middle of a pandemic and we have many dear brothers and sisters we haven't seen in, in a long time, we have had new, more new faces than, than I think we have had visiting since before the pandemic. And we're finishing, you know, we're finishing our Discover OGC and we have one of our larger classes we've ever had. And so while we're not adding thousands, you know, like, like this group is, there is a, a place for us to consider the fact that we are, we are a growing and changing church and that, that we have a lot, even though it's not thousands, uh, in common because our culture is changing as more people come in. I mean, there, there was a time when we would have had more uniformity around everything from color to the way we ch- school our children all the way to maybe even the, the intricacies of how we vote. So these things are bound to create tension in a church if we do not know how to deal with them well. It's creating tension in that church and it will create tension in our church if we don't look at it and name it and humbly and lovingly address it because this leads me to the second thing that required a new system. It wasn't just growth and diversity. You have grumbling here as well. Again, still in the first verse, we see that a complaint arose and the feeling and and the way the language works, it doesn't seem like there was a, a formal official complaint made at least not only a formal official complaint made to the apostles, you get the feeling there was dissatisfaction that was producing grumbling or murmuring and probably even gossip. So that this thing is, be- is becoming a thing. So what is it that the grumbling is over? Well, you have these, these Hellenistic widows and then you have these, uh, these Hebraic widows. And the Hellenistic widows do not feel like they are being treated equitably in the way that they are being, in the way the food distribution is, is going. So Luke is assuming some knowledge here. Uh, assuming his original audience knows a little bit of, of how widows are dealt with in that culture. In, in Hebrew culture, widows were taken care of. They were taken care of by the, the authorities and the government. And part of that was a daily distribution of food for them. Now we don't know when and why the, this distribution became a duty of the church and not a duty of, of, of Israel and the, the synagogue, but it has now transitioned to the church. And the Hellenistic Jews do not, Hellenistic widows do not think that they're getting the same fair treatment in that distribution as the Hebraic widows are getting. Now, we aren't told that this was malicious, but Luke does say that they were being neglected. And, and so, we want to believe the best as Christians. We, I feel like that should all the more for the apostles. And so I'm running on the assumption that this was a, f- a fairly innocent overlooking, a fairly uh, innocent oversight, but there was, according to Luke, a neglecting of a certain type of person. So if I were to use 
secular terms, what we have here is the first case of systemic racism in the church. Now that's a, that's a term that's gonna fly all over people because we're bringing terms in from outside the church and, and I, I get it when it's, when it's coming in from outside and, and it's as polarizing as it is outside the church, um, why it's gonna not sit well with certain people. But what we have here is a system that serves the majority culture and neglects the minority culture. I mean, that's what we have here. So if I were to apply biblical terms to this, I I probably wouldn't say systemic racism. I would say there is an organizational sin of partiality. I'm gonna use James's words here. So if you go to James 2, uh, James chapter 2, verses 2, 3, and 4, we'll hear about the sin of partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what we have here is a church that, let's even say it's unintentional, they are giving partiality to the dominant culture in the church and not the subdominant culture in the church. And I, it, it still falls under sin because it's our fault. It, it, even, though, even if it's innocent, there are ways, or, or, I shouldn't say innocent, even if it's an oversight, there are things the leadership has done to f- that have failed to address everybody's needs. And they will address it brilliantly in a minute but we're not getting there yet because you can't address a problem or engage with a a passage adequately until we can see the problem, name the problem, then we can address it. So, you know, we as a church, every church should do this, but we as a church need to recognize what the dominant culture in our midst looks like and proactively be looking for ways that maybe the subdominant culture or the minority culture isn't being looked after as well as the dominant culture. This is something they failed to do and something all of us are guilty of probably at at some level, but the call and the passage, at least in part, is to keep eyes on everyone that God has given the church. So, Cultural differences, that's what's at the heart of this grumbling. And we really can't, we can't overstate the danger that grumbling in our midst, in a church, the danger that it presents. And I, I think any church is prone to grumbling. I have to think that a church that is growing and changing in 2020 is going to be extra susceptible to this kind of grumbling and dissatisfaction and murmuring and even gossip. So I think this is a good time for us to hear this passage. I wonder if Peter had this situation in mind because this is a form of hospitality to widows when he wrote 1 Peter 4, 9, show no hospitality, or show, sorry, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then, of course, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 2. So what is so destructive about grumbling that Paul says, in every single thing that we do, grumbling should never be there? Because when we grumble, we're showing discontentment toward God for our circumstances. I heard somebody say once that, uh, that grumbling is discontent made audible. We are audibly communicating the fact that we don't feel like God has dealt with us justly we or fairly. We don't feel like God is going to use our circumstances for our good and for, for his glory. 
And I do want to be careful because I'm not saying that you can't be dissatisfied with your circumstances. And I'm not even saying you can't go to God and be very clear with your dissatisfaction. But there's a big difference between going to God the way the Psalms do and saying, I'm hurting here, I'm confused here, I'm scared here, and if I'm honest, I'm angry here. And some of that is directed at you right now, but when we do that, the heart isn't to just go and accuse God. The heart is to understand and be ministered to in that moment. What's going on when we grumble is we're not going directly to God. We're going to other people and gossiping and slandering his character. And this is something that God takes very seriously. I mean, you can see this all the way back with Moses. He's leading the people to the promised land. They know God has said that that he will deliver them into the promised land, but they decide they don't like the timeline with which he's going to bring that blessing. And so they grumble, and God is so serious about this grumbling that he prevents an entire generation from entering that promised land. Grumbling is serious. And in this passage, we have grumbling that's coming from, directly from growth and diversity. And so this passage, there's a warning from the bottom and there's a warning from the top. So from the bottom, all of us organically, are, are, as members, we need to pay attention to our heart to understand how we're communicating and be on guard against grumbling in the church that can create the kind of division I think the apostles were worried about. And then from the top, if all of us who hold a leadership position in this church, we need to be aware, are there systems and, struct- systems and structures in place that make it all the more ripe for such grumblings to exist and rise up. So it's a call from the bottom, from the top. Nobody gets off the hook here. The call is to understand our hearts and move towards each other in unity and love. And then this leads to the third reason that a new system had to be developed. It had to be developed because it has the potential to derail the call on the apostles. And so you have this growing church Increased grumbling, and I think the apostles rightly see this is a bigger issue than just food. Like th- this, has, this has the potential to at least derail the apostles from the call in their life, and at worst, permanently fr- fracture this nascent church. So they say very clearly, the apostles that is, that they cannot be diverted from the priority of their preaching the word and their prayer. And I can remember as a young 20s person reading, really reading this passage for the first time and feeling like, this is a little snooty. <laughs> you're, just above, you're just above waiting on tables. I don't know if, how I feel about that. But I have every reason to believe that I was wrong in my first reading of this passage. I have every reason to believe they're 100% willing to serve tables, but they know that it's best for the church that they don't. And I don't have good data as to exactly what the burden of serving these, these tables would have been. But just by the fact that it took seven men to oversee this, this would have been a, a lot of hours in the week. This would have been something that would have totally limited the apostles and, and probably taken from other things that, that, that they could be doing. So I don't think they're beneath social work. What they're communicating is a matter of their calling and their specific contribution to the church. My wife tells me often that when I say yes to something, I need to know what it is that I'm saying no to. Because every yes is a no someplace else. And let's just make sure that no isn't to the home. <laughs> and so I have a, f- a similar feeling here. If they were to say yes to, to directly engaging and serving these tables, the no would have been to their preaching of the word and their prayer. And they know that if they did that, everyone's going to suffer. 
Alistair Begg, who I probably quote way too much, but I love the guy. He says, they are very flexible with the process, as we're going to see in a second, but they are not flexible with the purpose. They understand the purpose and they are unwaveringly devoted to it. All right, so that's why they needed a new system. There was growth, there was grumbling, and had the potential to hijack the call of the apostles in this church. So now we get to look at the implementation of this new system. I think it's really interesting. I've missed this probably the first half a dozen times that I read this. But the apostles gather the disciples together, and you know what they didn't do? The apostles didn't just say, here's the solution, implement our solution. They gathered everybody together and they gave them guardrails. And they said, now you go, (laughs) you fix your problem. And so the guardrails were, okay, you're gonna pick seven men full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, go. You figure out who they are. And it's worth mentioning, this is one of the reasons why as a congregation, we do elect our deacons and our elders. I mean, this is, the apostles gave guardrails, but it was the church that decided who these seven men were going to be. And if you noticed, when Kevin read those names, they sound different. You know, it's, it's not like Peter, James, and John. These are Greek names. All seven are Greek names. And we can't definitively say that all seven are Hellenistic or Gre- Grecian Jews, but we, can, we have every reason to believe at least the vast majority of these men who were chosen were Grecian Jews. So what you see is the church is is choosing their leadership based on their cultural background so that more people are adequately taken care of. I mean, this is good leadership, wise leadership. And it's, it's one reason that we as a church should aspire for our leadership to at least represent the, the cultures and the backgrounds that God has given us here. Because we're gonna see things that we would otherwise miss. It's exactly what happened to the apostles. Exactly what their the the church as a whole by picking these greek men it's exactly what they're addressing so the big question were these the first deacons i don't know i i I mean the word deacon just means servant certainly the word serve is here serve serving tables um I don't think you can definitively say this is the office of deacon. It may have been, but certainly this is a watershed moment in the development of that process. And I mean, you can see the development of this principle going all the way back to Exodus. You may remember when Moses was leading the people, he was at one point hearing, um, hearing disputes between people from sun up to sundown. That was all he was doing. It totally hijacked him from what it is, the main call that he had. And you may remember his father-in-law, Jethro, stepped in and he said, what you are doing is not good. This is Exodus 18, 17. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So they came up with a system where godly men could step in, take this burden off of Moses and free Moses up for what he was what he could most helpfully contribute to the Israelite people. And so this principle, you see this principle all throughout scripture, but at some point it is formalized in the office of deacon. And I don't know if it's here or soon after, if it if not here, it was very soon after. And and you see in this passage that God has different calls on people, different calls to minister in different ways. And 
we have to be careful to not to not see that you know not give ourselves to think well what the apostles was doing that was real ministry everything else is just grunt work that they're above that's not what's going on the when when i had my early years in ministry i was working with crew which was Campus Crusade back then, and I had the great privilege to preach at my wife's home church, First Baptist Church, New Albany, Mississippi. And I preached what was probably a terrible sermon. But I finished and I walked down, and this sweet old lady came to me and she said, Jim, I just want to tell you, there, there's a group of us, us ladies, we're praying that God would call you into the ministry. I was like, what do you think I'm doing? <laughs> You're going to pray that for, for her, the only category for ministry was right here. And of course, I didn't say, what, what do you think I'm doing? I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate your prayers. But all Christians are called to ministry. All of us. Are, they're, they're, the calling is going to look different. But everyone, if you believe in Jesus, you are then drafted. But not, not and drafting has this negative connotation. We have the privilege of being able to be ministers. I think this is exactly what Paul's talking about when he writes to the Ephesian church. This is Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what I'm do, what, what I do is a, I'm a vocational uh, minister of the gospel. I've been freed up full time to pastor, to be here as an elder, but it's not that I'm the one doing the ministry or the elders are the ones doing the ministry or the staff or even the deacons are the ones doing the ministry. We all exist in this system that God has designed to equip you, the saints, to go out and do the ministry. It's it's, it's a multiplication effect. This is how God has designed his church to flourish, move forward, and expand. So, you may not be called to do this every week, but some of you are going to be called to do really important things that are just as valuable to the kingdom as what I do. Some of you are called into business ministry. Some of you are called into medical ministry. Some of you are called into social ministry. Some of you are called into home ministry. We all have these different callings, but they're just as significant. And so we as a church, we create systems inside the church to foster a great love for Jesus that will overflow in our unique callings as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so now, finally and most briefly, we get to see the effect of that system that they implemented. And and the result, the effect, is fruit. Things are going really well, and Luke wants us to know it. In verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And I think this is crazy. Many of the priests believe or became obedient to the, to the faith. I mean, it's growing. The God's word is spreading. It's, uh, the number of disciples is not, it doesn't say adding to. It's being greatly multiplied in Jerusalem. And we're going to get to see beyond Jerusalem in the coming chapters. But even the priests were coming to faith. So Luke, he wants it to be abundantly clear that there is growth because of what has happened. And Luke actually has what's called six summaries of growth in Acts. And this is the first one. And so he says, because of these things, there's now growth. And, and I think you can, 
there are three crises that have been averted. You had the Christ, potential crisis of the Jewish authorities coming in and, and bringing their persecution. You had the potential crisis of Ananias and Sapphira. And then you have this potential crisis of grumbling and unfair treatment. And it was all by God's grace handled well. Systems were put in play and the church is growing because of it. And I don't think I'm reading too much into these passages to say the enemy's primary way he is going going to hijack the mission of the church is through grumbling. Through coming in and what seems like a small level sin, this grumbling, this dissatisfaction gives itself to gossip and to slander. I I mean, I've seen this in so many churches. I've seen it uh, in missions teams. This seems to be, and I see it in the Bible, This is the way that God, sorry, this is the way the enemy goes after God's church. And I do have a deep sense that something special is happening at this church. I I could give you all the reasons why I have this sense, but I do think there is something special that has been, men and women have built on for decades. We just had our 29th birthday as a church. There's something special that is continuing in this church. And as a church, if we don't see that that would make Satan more uh, incentivized to have this kind of grumbling, and especially in 2020, that he wouldn't have more of an opportunity. We wouldn't just be remiss; we would be, we would be ignorant to the to the invisible realities around us. So this entire passage, it, it it is about the need for a new system, a new system in the church. There is an organizational problem, but the apostles realize it's a heart problem that plays out in the organization. And so their goal is to fix it and they do their best to do that. But no matter how great a system is on paper, it's only as good as the people implementing it. And we know that we're all flawed to the core. And so it's not to say that we shouldn't strive to implement systems that will foster gospel fruitfulness in our midst. We should because that's obviously what Acts chapter 6 is pushing us towards these systems. But we can't put our ultimate hope in these systems. We can't put our ultimate hope in systems in the church. And we surely can't put our hope in in systems outside of the church. They may be able to... They may be able to make things a little bit better, but they are never going to bring the justice and the equity and the peace that we ultimately desire. Only Jesus can do that. Because inside all these systems are flawed people and only Jesus is coming to change your heart. These systems, as good as they might be, they do not offer forgiveness, they do not offer transformation, and they will never, never give us the joy that we long for the most. Only Jesus does that. Because Jesus not only identified the problem in our heart, Jesus came down here to fix it. He paid the price for all the disobedience and the sin in our hearts. He atoned for that and he is committed. He is not just able, he is committed to seeing us drawn into the kingdom and rid of this disease called sin to live with him in the new heaven and new earth forever. No system can do that. So as Christians, we have a very different view of systems than the outside world. We don't put our ultimate hope in them. We see the benefit of many of these systems, but to the outside world, and I have to give Robert Jackson credit for this one, 
they operate, systems operate a lot like the law does to a lost world. It shows, it didn't solve our, our problem. It shows us that we have a problem. It shows us how far we have to go. But to the Christian, these kind of systems, because we don't have our ultimate hope in them, they can work for us the best. Because we know that our ultimate hope is in Jesus. And so the Bible says that we are not saved by keeping the law. We are saved to keep the law. It's it's an important distinction. And in the same kind of way, we are never going to be saved by the systems of the church. But we are saved by Jesus Christ to be able to strive to create and maintain systems that promote gospel truth and gospel unity so that we as believers will flourish and that God's kingdom will grow and strengthen and expand in our context. I think that is at the heart of this passage. Deacons is in there, but this is what is at the heart of the passage. Let's pray. God, we just, I'm just always so thankful you show me things every week in, in these passages. And I pray that that is true for everyone else here, not because I see them, but because you see them and you're showing us and you're doing a work that only your spirit can do. And so I pray, and if there's ever been a year of systemic pivoting in the church, it has been this year. And I pray that you would continue to give the the leaders of this church wisdom to pivot and change systems based on all our changing environments and the pandemic and all the other things in our climate. But I pray that everyone here would have a deep sense that our great hope is not in a system, but a savior. We have a savior, Jesus Christ, who is committed to us, who is able to deliver us. And I pray that this morning, that that would become even more clear in our minds and our hearts, and that we would experience joy that would surpass the understanding, (laughs) the logical way that uh, we should feel given many circumstances. But I pray that this would be true and that we would be a blessing to your kingdom because you first blessed us in Jesus Christ. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your perfect son, Jesus. Amen.